0: Church, and um, let them out, and then you can be seated. Um, Before we go right into our text, though, um, I just wanted to ask if there was anyone who wanted to share a a testimony this morning. Um, You know, the the early church was was not a monologue uh, for Paul to stay up until midnight preaching, the Greek word is dialogue, where we get the word dialogue, so I, I think there was a lot of conversing, and we had we had a wonderful time in, in the hour before dialoguing and sharing our thoughts and our ideas, but I want to just open it to a, a testimony of just God's faithfulness to you. Um, if someone would like to share just anything about how God has just been so faithful and um, Maybe something this week, or maybe just in this past month, this past year, that you can just see the evidence of God's faithfulness in your life. Anyone want to just share something real quick? Okay, I thought I saw another hand. I don't have my glasses on. Let me get my glasses back on. Is that Lily? (laughs) Go ahead, Barb, and then Lily. It's good to see uh, Tammy here too. After being on her crutches, Tammy, have you had your surgery yet? Yeah, in December. In December. Okay. All right. Nehemiah chapter nine, and I'm it, the, the. We're going to preach from the entire chapter, so I'm not going to read it all, just for the sake of time. I'm just going to read um, chapter. 9 verses 5 and 6, and then we'll, we'll go through the chapter expositorily, and we're not going to dig deep because it is so much information. We're going to look for the big picture. Father, um, as we stand in awe of you, Lord, there is something about just acknowledging your greatness by standing. As we read this word this morning... We're reminded that when Ezra opened the book, the people spontaneously stood. And we ask you to bless the teaching this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start halfway through verse 5. I'm not going to read all the names. I'll stop with Joshua. And the Levites, Joshua, and the other Levites that are listed for us, Said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens. With all the hosts, the earth and everything on it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, the hosts of heaven worship you. You may be seated. Nehemiah and the Levites here are blessing This God that they've come to know and experience through their history. And as you read this chapter, there's several themes that just resonate for us. And one of them is that God is incomprehensible, that we can't fathom God. Who can fathom His infinite mercy, as we sang this morning? By incomprehensible, I don't mean that we can't understand God. There's much about God that we do understand just from general revelation alone. And it's interesting that as they began to bless God, they refer to general revelation. By general revelation, I mean something that all people are aware of through creation and through conscience And because of that revelation, all men everywhere are accountable to God because God is knowable in that sense. But God is also incomprehensible in that God never existed outside of time. I mean, God always existed outside of time, that there was never a time when God did not exist. And that's why we're... Called on to bless his name forever and ever because our God is eternal. So, when I use the word incomprehensible, I'm meaning that God's attributes, we can't fathom the depths of them. As we read through this chapter, we're going to see how faithful God is. In spite of Israel's history, Failure after failure after failure. It only gives a paragraph describing the period of the judges. But it was a time period of 350 years of cycle of sin. Repent. Get right with God. Go back into sin. Repent. It was over and over again. And God would raise up deliverers. Yeshua. God would raise up judges but the, the word in the Hebrew is a, a deliverer, a savior that God would raise up for them even though they didn't deserve it. And sometimes it got so bad God said, I'm, I'm done. And then God in his mercy would say, I'm going I'm to intervene anyway because that's the picture of our God. And so that just permeates this chapter. It also talks about how faithful God is in spite of the way we respond to some of the things that happen in our lives. God was so faithful. And so when I say that God is incomprehensible, I'm talking about how unfathomable his attributes. will never fully understand the depth of his person or his attributes that are infinite. Isaiah put it like this when speaking on behalf of God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now the context where that verse is given, and it's often taken out of context, but the context is God's forgiveness. God's graciousness, God's mercy. That's when God said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. Because I am so compassionate, I'm so forgiving, I'm so understanding of your shortcomings, your failings, and your sinful ways. For his ways are not our ways. That verse that we often quote, Malachi 3 6, I am the Lord God, I change not. And we stop right there, but that's not the end of the verse. The rest of the verse says, therefore you are not consumed, O Israel. It's because God doesn't change. Because our God is unfathomable in his infinite love. We can't understand it. The blessings that they are called to give here. It says, stand up and I... I'm not going to do this for all the verses because we just don't have time this morning. But it says, Blessed be your glorious name. So, this is a lesser blessing the greater. Okay? What I mean by that is the creature is blessing the creator. Now, most often we think of the greater blessing the lesser. And there's a verse in the book of Hebrews that talks about Melchizedek. Being the one who blesses Abraham. So he's the greater blessing the lesser. And in this case, it is the lesser who is blessing the one who's infinite. And so it doesn't mean that we're confirming or conferring any uh blessings upon God because he doesn't need it. So what does it mean when when the reverses uh is in, in effect? To bless when used by the lesser. It means to willfully submit, to honor, to acknowledge its supremacy. But when it's used in the converse, the Hebrew word barak literally means to bend the knee, to submit and to surrender to someone's all supremacy and authority. So when you and I bless God and say, blessed be his name in our hearts, we are bending knee. Before an almighty God, acknowledging his supremacy and our submission before him. And so, this is what this entire chapter is about it's showing who God was throughout the history of Israel. God is in a class all of his own, there's nothing like our God. God is eternal. And that's where they begin right here. You alone are God. There was no God before him. I love Isaiah 43 verse 10. Well, God says to Isaiah, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you might know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed that is the Christian God that is the Judeo God the eternal God that there was no regressions of gods after gods after gods that no God was before him and there will be no God after him Isaiah forty three ten. you alone are God our God never changes Malachi 3 6 I've already quoted that verse but God is also all powerful he's omnipotent you alone have made heaven and earth. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this. By faith we understand that the words of God framed our universe. So that the things that you and I can see were not made by the things that do appear. They were made by an eternal God. Matter is not eternal. Matter is always decaying and losing inertia. I don't know if I use that right. I'll have to talk to Robert after church. <laughs> he don't know. <laughs> oh, at least. Okay. But it is. It's winding down. And so the things that you and I are looking at, they weren't made from the things that appear. They came from an eternal God. He spoke this universe into existence out of nothing. That is the God we serve. And that's why we bless our God. He's eternal. He's all powerful. And He is the preserver and the giver of life. In Jesus was life. And the life became flesh and lived among us, and we beheld His glory. But without Christ, without our God, without our Creator, nothing would come into existence. In fact, John 1 1 starts out like this In the beginning was the Word. The Lagos, the rational reason for everything that is. The Greeks use that Greek word Lagos to explain the infinite wisdom that has all understanding. And John capitalizes on the Greeks' understanding of that. And he uses it as an evangelistic tool to open up the eyes of the unbelievers. That our infinite wisdom is the name of Jesus, and before him nothing existed. And without him nothing existed. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So our God is the preserver and the giver of life. He's in a class all his own. But our God also, not only is he infathomable, God enters into a relationship with humans. Our God is a personal God. He's not just a God who's intimately or or immensely remote and far away, as many of the the pagan gods are. Our God is a God who's near at hand. He is close to those who are contrite and of a broken spirit. Thus saith the high and lofty one. Isaiah 57.15 who inhabits eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place but also with him who is a broken and a contrite spirit that he might revive the spirit of the contrite ones and revive the heart of the broken. Our God is a God who's near at hand and a God who speaks and a God who enters into covenant relationship with people and that's the God of Israel that's our God who enters into covenant with us. and so in the verses following we're going to read um, just a few of them and then we'll we'll stop as we uh, uh, look at the next subject but this this God who enters into covenant, it starts in verse seven: "You are the Lord God who chose Abram brought him out of Ur the Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. Now, there were many promises in the Abrahamic Covenant... But it's interesting that Nehemiah and the Levites here only bring out this aspect of the promise because this was so personal to them right now. They had just left Persia. They had been in captivity for 180 years or 140 years depending on which group came back and when they came back. But from the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 606 B.C., the next destruction was in 596 B.C., the final deportation and the demolishing of Jerusalem was in 586 B.C. by King Nebuchadnezzar. And all of that covenant promise they thought was gone. And Jeremiah had given them a promise. He said, after 70 years, you will return to this land. And to the very year, 516, they rebuilt that temple that was destroyed in 586. And Nehemiah comes back to this land and they said, God, you are righteous. You entered into a covenant with us and God, you are trustworthy. When our God gives you and I a promise because of his covenant goodness, we can rely and we can trust in God. God enters into a covenant with us and God doesn't do it because we deserve it. But God does it because he is faithful. Why did God choose Abraham? Was there something special about Abraham? No. In fact, just the opposite. Was there something special about Israel as a nation? No. Is there anything special about you and I? Absolutely not. You and I are chosen because we are chosen in Christ. He is the blessed one. He is the elect one. And when we put our faith in him, then God puts us into his elect people. There's nothing special about you and I. It's a specialness about Jesus. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because the Lord would keep his oath which he has sworn to your fathers... Know, therefore, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 7. That's why God's people were still back in the land in Nehemiah's day in 445 B.C., because God was faithful. And the reason you and I have blessings today is because our God is faithful God knows where we are at because of this covenant relationship that he has with you and I. This morning, I can say with all confidence that Jesus Christ knows exactly what you're feeling if you're going through a heartache. If you're depressed, God knows exactly how your heart feels. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. And when the people left The promised land, because of the famine, and they went down into Egypt, and their taskmasters oppressed them. What does the Bible tell us in verse 9? God saw their affliction, God heard their cry, and God showed mighty signs and wonders. God was there the whole time. God knows where we're at. He sees, He hears, and He shows signs. Those signs were not just to... uh, To display his glory only, but they were redemptive acts in history to identify him as the only true God. He divided the sea. He led them by a pillar. God provides both moral and physical sustenance for his people because he enters into a covenant. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. You came down also on Mount Sinai. You spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made them to to know them, your holy Sabbath. God is doing all of this to accentuate his people. And he's showing them Jesus through all of these things. And he commanded them precepts and statutes and law by the hand of Moses, your servant. Not only spiritually is he our provider, but... Also, physically, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land which you had lifted. Literally, God had lifted up his hand. And it's translated, he has sworn to give them. So God gave them the law. He provided for the moral and physical sustenance. His words, notice his words. In 13, they are just ordinances. They are true laws. They are good statutes. This is what every one of us needs. And God provides it for us. Now, let's just take a look at the, the Hebrew words behind that are translated just The Hebrew word is yashar, which means upright. It is an objective standard. My wife was doing some remodeling in our house. I mean, she's got the projects going all the time. I've never seen a happier woman if she's got a paintbrush in her hand or, or a miter saw that Keith gave us. She just... But anyway... She wanted to make sure that those panels that she was putting on the wall were upright. And so she had her level, and she made sure that that bubble was in the middle. That's the idea of yashar. It's an objective standard. You know when that thing is upright. And we have an objective standard from God. We don't have to muddle around through life. Wondering what is truth Wondering what is right or wrong, God has given us a yashar, an upright, a just standard. He has given us true ordinances, the word truth. The Hebrew word is amen, or amen. But again, the idea for that means that they are objective. They are absolute, they never change, and they are objective. They're not based on our feelings. And then he says they are good. The Hebrew word good means pleasant. You walk in God's laws and you are going to have a pleasant life. The same word was used in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 when God said, Behold, everything that He made was very, very good. It was pleasant. It was excellent. It was the, the moral best it could possibly be. And that's what God has provided for His people and that's what He's provided for you and I. God is gracious in spite of you and I. Let's look at 16 through 21. So God had given them all these things. He'd given them the right laws at Mount Sinai. He had brought them water and food. And then verse 16 starts with the word but. So it's all in spite of us. God doesn't change. But they... Our fathers acted proudly they hardened their necks they did not heed your commandments they refused to obey they were not mindful of your wonders Boy that's that's us isn't it that you did among them but they they notice it's they hardened their necks God didn't give them hard necks God didn't give us some, some eternal decree that they had to be hard and rebellious and blind no it says they they hardened their necks and in their, their rebellion, they are accountable for it. What did they do? They appointed a leader to return back to their bondage. Look at this. But you are God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. But God, who is great in his mercy, wherewith he loved us, Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are quick to forget. God is quick to forgive. Psalm 103 and verse 8. Let me just read it real quick. The Lord is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. That's our God. But God, but God was gracious, ready to pardon, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Look at the next verse. Even when they made a molten calf for themselves, and they said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked those great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by night. Our God is not a fickle God. Our God is not wishy-washy. Our God is not easily offended. Our God doesn't withhold blessings from us just to spite us. Our God is so good. You also gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You didn't withhold your manna from their mouth. Boy, I would have. I said, you're complaining about this bread? Oh, we're sick of this manna. I would have said, okay, that's it. Go out tomorrow and fi- see what you're going to find. Our God is not like that. Can our God bring water out of a rock? I don't know, Moses. He got, Moses got so mad, he went out and struck it the second time instead of speaking to it. And God still brought the water out of the rock. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked absolutely nothing. And all they did was murmur and grumble and complain The entire time because they didn't remember what God had done in the land of Egypt. When you and I get to those places in life where it gets rough, when we're in the desert, when we're lacking the manna, what do you and I need to do? We need to go back and remember the faithfulness of God. I think it was Rick who was sharing, he shared it a couple times the last couple weeks, but when he and Bonnie first got married, they used to wonder, okay, God, how are we going to get out of this? I don't know what's gonna, what, how you're going to do it. And now, later in life, they say, God, we know you're going to do something. We're just going to watch you do it. Because when you see God working, he's not just a God of the Bible. He's not a God of the past. He is a God, a living God right now in our lives. I remember the first time I met a family that actually lived that way. And it was the most radical change in my life up to that time. I lived a very practical life where if you didn't have the money for something, you just didn't do it. Or if you didn't have a way of seeing how it was going to be done, you didn't start it. And then I went a summer missionary up in the Arctic of Alaska where you don't have anything at your fingertips. You don't have Walmart. You probably didn't have Walmart back then anyway. But you you didn't have... uh, What's that store you love hanging out in, Tracy? Home Depot. Home Depot. <laughs> you you couldn't order lumber, you could not order anything, and yet I watched this family pray, and God provided everything that they needed. I'm I mean literally everything, from paper that went on a roof. I don't know, tar paper to siding. I, I, I kid you not. I'll tell you just one short story. They, they were praying to redo their, their church building. The insulation had all been destroyed. The floors were warped, ruined. The roof leaked horrifically. And this is where they were meeting for church. And so they just started asking God to send it. Well, I was with another organization on the other side of the village. And that summer, they were to redo their entire building building. And as a result of the flood, it, none of the materials got up there. But instead, all the carpenters were up there. Boy, I, I, my, my memory's failing me. I, I probably shouldn't have started down this rabbit trail. <laughs> but the long and short of it, I watched all these carpenters in this village with absolutely nothing to do and no materials. So they went down to this missionary's house and said, we are here for the summer. What can we do? And he gave them the whole list. And I believe it was a backhoe that was supposed to be put on the Yukon River, floated down from a village called Circle down to the village of Fort Yukon. The backhoe never made it. So all the building materials, midsummer. There's no foundation dug, and so the materials make it into the village. And here's these carpenters saying, We don't have anything to do with this because we have no foundation. The backhoe never got in here to dig the foundation. But here's this missionary who needs all these materials. I'm sharing this story just so you see that we need to go back sometimes and remember what our God does, that He's a God that can be trusted. And he also gives grace gifts. And they're not based on, on anything that you and I do. They're, they're, that's why they're called grace gifts. God overlooks the cycles of sin during the period of Judges, 26 through 29. This, this, I'm, I'm skipping a lot um, just for the sake of time. Chapter, 20, chapter 9, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. So I guess I should read a couple of verses right before it. They, let's start at verse 24. The people went in and possessed the land. Finally, after 40 years of wandering, they subdued it before them, the inhabitants of Canaan. And we've got the Armana tablets that talk about the invasion of, the Canaan, of Canaan by this Havaru people who were just taking city after city. He gave it into their hands with their kings, the, the city-states. Each city-state had a king. And the people of the land... That they might do with them as they wished, and they took strong cities and rich land. They possessed houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards and olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and they were filled and they grew fat. They delighted themselves in the great goodness. Verse 26 God overlooked their cycles during the period of the judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who testified against them. They turned them to to yourselves, and they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them to the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies you gave them the judges, or the, the saviors, the deliverers, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And after they had rest, again they did evil before you, therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them, why? according to your mercies. And you testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly, and they did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. And then they shrugged their shoulders, they stiffened their necks, and would not hear. God's chastisement is for our benefit. God does not delight in punishing you and I. God doesn't delight in bringing adversities into our life. God does it because of his infinite love for us. David said this in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have learned thy precepts. All of God's chastisement, all of God's punishment, all of bringing the enemies is out of his love for you and I. It's for our benefit. His chastisement is also corrective, not just punitive. So when you read the word chastisement, it doesn't just mean that God is punishing. It's not just merely punitive. His chastisement is also corrective, and his chastisement is instructive. Let me just turn over to a passage In the New Testament, that teaches this principle for us. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as a son. Therefore, what, uh, for what son is there whom his father does not correct? Now, if you are without correction, then you are no longer a son. You're illegitimate. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be submissive to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us after what seemed to be good to them. But he, here it is, God's chastisement is corrective. It's teaching. It's for our profit. And the end result that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, the Israelites, when those enemies came in and invaded their land, I'm thinking of Gideon in particular, when the Midianites were coming in, raiding their crops, none of that chastisement seemed to be joyous, rather grievous. But what did it yield? It yielded holy living. No chastisement seems joyous at the present time. Rather, it's painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness by those who've been trained by it. And this is what our God does. He doesn't merely overlook the cycles of sin in our lives. And God doesn't set us on a shelf. God never says, okay, you're no longer usable by me. No, God in his love and his correctiveness comes in and remolds us and shapes us. Now, there are three things that have brought Israel to this point in this prayer. We finally get to the petition. We don't get to the petition until verse 32. So, uh, Nehemiah and the Levites here have been going over and over been God's goodness, starting with Abraham. How God had entered into a covenant with Abraham and changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Then he reminds them of their period in In Egypt, how God saw their affliction, he heard their cry, he performed mighty wonders, he brought them out, and they wouldn't go into the land. They complained and they murmured, they found other gods and said, this is the God who brought us out, let's go back to Egypt, let's go back to bondage. And God said, I'm not going to forsake you. And all of this, there are three things that in this petition, that's bringing them to a point of faith. There's still a remnant in Israel here who are believers. And that's the remnant that came back with Ezra. That's that remnant that came back with Nehemiah. These are the people of faith. These are the people who are walking by, not by sight, but walking by faith. And there are three things that that cause them to come to this point. One is the conviction of their guilt. Of sinning against a great and merciful God. Verse 31 and 32. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. God, you're a God who forgives. The conviction of their sin brought them to faith. God, your, attribute, your attribute, attributes make you God alone and God who's worthy. The, the prophet Habakkuk said this, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of your people that you may be feared? The psalmist said this in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If God would mark on a chalkboard or whatever, if God would mark iniquity, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mightest be feared, revered. So faith has to start with a conviction of sin before this gracious and merciful God. Don't think of our hardships as insignificant, he prays. So let's go on to look at this petition. You keep covenant with mercy. Now the next petition says, Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Then he lists all the people that has come upon so what is, the, what is this petition about here? He, he's saying, don't look at our hardships as insignificant. God, remember that we are just feeble dust. God, we need your mercy. Don't, don't look on us and say, you know, you guys have got exactly what you deserved. Because we, we do get what we, 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 we don't want what we deserve, right? We, we want his grace and mercy. So again, there's this contrition. Oh, God, don't look on it. as insignificant. Remember, Remember our condition. Remember how helpless we are without faith. We can't do anything without faith. And then it says, God, you are faithful. And when we deserved a worse fate, you didn't utterly consume us. There's a second thing that brought him to faith was the apprehension that repentance, absolute repentance, repentance, is needed. To continue in rebellion, there is no escape. So let's go down to verse 33, or the end of verse 31. End of verse 32. Stay with me here. We're almost done. From the days of the kings of Assyria until this day, however, you are just in all that has befallen us. He's talking about 400 years of Israel's history. From the time of the Assyrians, when Israel was divided. And Ashurbanifal came in and taxed the kingdom of Israel so severely in the 8th century B.C., And then the next one, Sennacherib the Great, came and besieged the city of Samaria and took them off into captivity. And Sargon the Great, the great Assyrian, then finished that work. And then the city of Nineveh fell in 612 BC by the Babylonians. And the Babylonian Empire then took over and destroyed Israel. And then the Medo-Persian Empire rose up in 539 B.C. And God, you have been faithful and just ever since those days. And God, if we don't walk by faith, we apprehend that there is absolutely no escape other than walking with you. So they're acknowledging this. And this is the same for you and I the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, now the Medo-Persian Empire, and yet a remnant had been saved. We were in a position of blessing, and now the Israelites realize that we are about to lose it all. They had such a bountiful land. You remember what we read earlier? They found cisterns that they hadn't dug, olive trees that they didn't plant. They grew fat, and all of this A land flowing with milk and honey. A land that God said, I will bless you in this land. I will make you a great nation. I will raise up a king for you named David, whose empire would span from India all the way to Egypt. And now what's happened to these people? Let's look at verse 34. Neither our kings, our princes, nor our fathers have kept your law. They didn't heed your commandments, your testimonies, which you testified against them. For they have... Not served you in their kingdom, nor the many good things that you gave them, or in the land large and rich which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are servants today in the land that you gave our fathers to eat the fruit of its bounty. We here are servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings. Other people are getting the benefit now of this promised land that you have set over us because of our sins. They also have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. So, faith acknowledges that repentance is absolutely essential. Position of blessing. And now, if they don't turn to God in faith, they could lose everything. The third thing, an understanding of our sin, an apprehension that repentance is needed, the decision that faith in God's covenant promises is the only way to an abundant life. They come to this realization in verse 38. And because of all this, because God we are sinners, Because, God, you've not dealt with us according to our sins. Because, God, you've given us time after time. And you've been so faithful. And, God, now we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge that without faith and trusting in you, we could lose everything. There is a conscious decision to enter into an agreement by faith with God. Because of all of this, that is the climax of this entire prayer what do they do we make the word make in the hebrew language is the word karath it literally says and now we cut and what that 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 is an idiom but it has so much theological meaning to a hebrew we do we make agreements with people the hebrews didn't they cut and by that an animal sacrifice was given and both parties walked through those cut animals, and both parties enjoined themselves into a meal. And it was agreement on both sides that they were going to be faithful and true. And so they were saying, God, because of all this now, we are placing our faith in the one true God, and we make a, we cut, literally, we make a sure covenant and we write it, and we seal it. The realization, because of all this, faith is needed. God, you have made it so clear that you are trustworthy. God, you couldn't have done any more for your people to show that you are a God that can be trusted. So now, God, we are going to trust you because you are so trustworthy. This morning, God has given you and I such assurance of his trustworthiness. And that was on the cross. He was delivered up, Jesus was, for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification. How is it that you and I know that God will forgive sin? How is it that you and I can have such confidence in our Savior? Because the grave could not keep him. John two nineteen. by what authority, Jesus, do you do these things? I will show you my absolute authority. You destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it again. God has made a covenant with you and I. God is trustworthy, and we can enter into that covenant by faith because of all this, because I've made a wreck of my life without Jesus. Because I know that unless I repent, there's repercussions for it that could lose everything. And now I'm coming to you, God, and I'm entering into this agreement with you by faith alone. We make a sure. The word for sure is amen. They were, in a sense, taking up their cross and following the one true God. Everything in Israel's past was either blessed by faith or marked by by unbelief they walked through the Red Sea by faith they came to the promised land and looked in and they didn't enter in because of unbelief so this entire history that we read about the judges the wilderness the times in Egypt they were either walking by faith or they were walking by unbelief so everything in our life needs to follow faith. Those who wish to live by faith sealed the writing. I know that that was a fast journey through Israel's history and a fast summary, and we didn't cover a lot of the verses. So I just encourage you today to to go home, read through this chapter again, and look at all the times that it mentions God's grace, God's mercies, God's pardon, God's forgiveness. Father God, today, Lord, I think of so many parallels in the New Testament with the disciples. Jesus, you had just fed 5,000 people. On another occasion, you feed 4,000 people. And then you warn the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they immediately begin to reason in their hearts. Is it because we've only got one loaf of bread with us? It's because their hearts were hardened and they didn't consider what you'd already done. God, help us when we come to those places in our lives to remember what you have already done. And God, to place our faith in you. God, many times you marveled at the apostles' unbelief. And God, we look at the disciples and we look at the history of Israel and we think, God, I would never do that. And yet, God, many times when we get into those places in life where we're struggling, we start to murmur and we start to grumble. And at those moments, God, that's when we are exercising unbelief. God, help us to look at the walls around us, the walls of Jericho. Help us to look at the giants in the land and help us, God, not to look through the lenses of our eyes, but God, help us to look through the lens of faith. Lord God, today, if there's anyone here that's struggling with understanding whether they're a believer in Jesus or not, God, I pray that... Lord, that they would understand that there's a conviction of their guilt before a merciful God who sees sin so serious that He nailed His Son to a cross. God, I pray that they would repent and realize that the path that they're taking is a path that's broad that leads to destruction. And unless they turn it around, God, and walk on the narrow path, they will not find life. And God, I pray pray today also if there's an unbeliever here that God that they would be a decision to trust the covenant that you made with them that Jesus took their sin and he made a sure covenant with us that if we would simply trust his finished work alone we would have everlasting life and father as believers God we know there's only one way to live the Christian life there's only one way it's not by law it's not by rituals. God, it's not by greater self-discipline and just willing ourselves through the Christian life. God, there's only one thing that pleases you, and that is faith. Taking your promises, living by them, and entering into what you've already finished for us. The covenant had already been finished with Abraham. Now, almost a thousand years later, these people are entering into that same covenant by faith. May we do that with Jesus as your children today by following Christ wholeheartedly, trusting in his promises, trusting in his provision, trusting in his power and his victory over sin, that our old man has been laid to rest, and by faith we can reckon ourselves alive with Christ. We pray this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.